You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, On Saturday afternoon, gay supporters of Donald Trump and the organizers are right not to use LGBTQALFTSQNBIA supporters of Donald Trump's and sexual minorities for Trump seems to be an exclusively gay white male head trauma. On Saturday afternoon, gay supporters of Donald Trump gathered on the mall in view of the White House and they rallied all 10 of them. If you haven't seen the pictures, if the news about this hilariously empty rally was crowded out of your timeline by the president's latest bullying sexist tweet storm, oh man, the pics are worth looking up. There's a really good one at the new civil rights movement.com and man, is that picture mortifying. Mortifying in two ways. First, it has to be mortifying for the organizers who must have been embarrassed by the non-turnout. Although it remains an open question whether politically clueless assholes who are incapable of feeling shame are somehow capable of feeling mortified or embarrassed. And secondly, the pics are mortifying to the vast and overwhelming majority of other queers in this country, the LGBTQALFTSQNBIA community, who reject these flaming assets in their red MAGA hats. The organizers of the event, they were mortified for a moment for as long as their pathetic little rally lasted. The rest of us, however, the overwhelming majority of queers, we are constantly mortified by these people because we are asked by straight people again and again and again to explain the existence of gays for Trump, all 10 of them. How'd that happen? Where are they coming from? Where do they get off? Well, they get off on the coverage they get, more coverage in the media and on political blogs than they should get out of all proportion to their numbers. And every time they make the news even if all they've done is hold a rally that literally no one attended, we are asked to explain them again. I've unpacked it before. It's been a while, but I'm getting questions in the wake of the gays for Trump rally in DC. So once more with feeling gay people abuse drugs, alcohol, and tobacco at higher rates than straight people do. We also commit suicide at higher rates. Now, haters on the right argue this proves the gay lifestyle is dangerous and unhealthy because being gay makes us do all these things. Like so much else, the haters have this backwards. Being gay doesn't make us do these things. Being gay doesn't damage us. It's the way we're treated for being gay. The discrimination, oppression, bigotry, rejection by family members, poisoned by their faiths. That leaves many of us damaged and this damage can manifest itself in self-destructive behaviors. Watching a gay friend drink himself to death or drug himself to death or fuck himself to death or all three at once himself to death, it isn't pretty. And it's often hard to be or remain friends with someone who is intent on destroying himself in these ways because they're not satisfied destroying themselves only. They have to destroy other gay men too. Using meth isn't enough. They want their friends to use meth with them. Abusing alcohol isn't enough. They want their friends to match them drink for drink. And spinning out of control sexually, it isn't enough. All other friends have to be cum dumps too. Anyway, if you want to know why a gay man would rally for Trump with nine of his closest friends, Trump, who is undermining the rights of LGBT Americans with each appointment he makes, the Supreme Court is poised to turn the clock back decades, and that's with just one Trump appointment so far. If you want to know what's up with them, look to the meth addicts and the drunks. 
While most self-loathing, self-destructive gay men are content to abuse drugs or alcohol or dick, some gay men abuse themselves with politics. Like those meth addicts who aren't satisfied harming only themselves, gays for Trump, like log cabin Republicans and go proud assholes before them, aren't satisfied harming themselves only. They want to harm other gay people too. They want to harm all gay people everywhere by supporting a party and a politician intent on harming them. Gays for Trump, again, all 10 of them, went to that rally for the same reason your meth-addicted pal keeps picking up that pipe. Because they're damaged. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your Q, lots of my A. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at www.savagelovecast.com, a longer show and no ads. We have special guest Mistress Matisse joining us for the Magnum to talk about Velvet Swing, her new line of THC-enhanced all lubricants. That's in the Magnum, along with more questions, more Q, more my A, in the Magnum, savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan, a 27-year-old gay kinky male here. I think this might be a first for your show. Not sure this might be a question for the audience, though. I recently listened in the Marines, and my kink is being locked long-term in chastity. This only poses a problem because in the military, we are randomly piss-tested, and these tests are conducted in a way that you have to expose yourself to the person administering the test. I have a non-combat job, so I'll mostly be at a desk making this, in theory, doable, except for these tests. I'm sure I don't have to go into how close-minded the military is, so my question is, do you or your audience have any experience with this? Is there any way that I can stay locked or do I have to give this up while serving? Thank you. The UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, doesn't cover long-term male chastity play. And I would call the Defense Department and try to get a ruling, but I can't imagine I would get, first of all, an answer because the Trump administration hasn't staffed up the Pentagon or the State Department or anything else. But I can't imagine I would get a positive response or even a, a hearing. I would probably get a phone slammed down. So I don't have an answer for you. Maybe there's a listener out there who does a former JAG, maybe listener might have an answer for you, but it seems like the sort of thing you would have to take up with your superiors. People are allowed to have kinks, but your kink includes hardware. That's not a part of your uniform. So I have no fucking idea. Now, of course, wearing a malchastity device, you can still piss. You can still drop trousers in front of somebody. You can fill the jar that the person administering the piss test needs filled. They can see the urine is coming out of your dick, even if your dick is locked up in a malchastity device. So it isn't going to prevent the test from being administered. And maybe the person administering the test, therefore, won't have a problem with it. But like the good, fine, hardworking people at TSA, they'll probably be taken aback by your male chastity device when they spot it on you. When you drop trousers for your piss test in the Marines, when they see it in the x-ray at TSA, at the airport at security, uh, and it'll probably kick off a whole conversation. So I don't have an answer for you. I don't think I can get an answer for you. Maybe a listener out there has an answer for you, but the person I think who's likeliest to have an answer for you and you're likeliest to get an immediate response from is the person who is lucky enough to be administering that piss test to all the hot, kinky, gay Marines out there. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Outrose Youth. I'm a 26-year-old woman from Canada, so I've been sleeping with one of my best friends for about three months now. The sex is really, really good, and we get along incredibly well. The problem is he's engaged to be married in about four months. So for context, he and his partner have been together for a pretty long time, um, about eight or nine years. And they aren't in an open relationship. 
So from what I understand, their relationship has had quite a few problems, although according to him, this is the first time he's ever cheated on her or anyone at all. So I guess my question is, well, I'm in this position where I'm his friend and I'm also the only person who knows he's cheating on his fiance. So should I be the one who talks to him about whether or not he should be making a marriage level commitment? It's not that I want him to leave his fiance to be with me or anything, necessarily. I'm just more concerned about seeing a friend make a decision he'll regret. But at the same time, I'm worried that having this conversation will mean losing him as a friend and to be completely honest, as a fuck buddy. So what should I do, if anything? There are so many different and conflicting roles that you are playing in the life of this man. You are best friend. You are fuck buddy. You are probably invited to the wedding that I think you should probably recuse yourself because your conflicts of interests are legion. But if he is your best friend and he's fucking you, you should have this conversation with him about what the fuck is he doing? He's marrying someone else in three months. And also what the fuck are you doing? He's marrying someone else in three months and he's fucking you, his best friend. Does he not want to marry this woman? Is he slamming his hand down on the eject slash self-destruct button? Does he not want to make a monogamous commitment? And clearly it seems he doesn't. Those are conversations he needs to have with his fiance before he marries her. And he's honor bound to have those honor bound. I don't think honor comes into it at this juncture, but he's obligated, morally obligated. I don't think morals come into it at this juncture either. He's obligated to have this conversation with her before the wedding because the odds that this will come out after the wedding are really high. You know, people sometimes do this. They think, oh, I'm going to get married, so I'm going to do these things that I really want to do before I get married because then when I marry, these things stop. And you know what? They don't stop when you get married. If he's going to fuck other women when he's engaged to someone else and a monogamous commitment, hopefully an explicit one, not just a default setting monogamous commitment exists, he's going to continue to do those things after the wedding. I think you should use whatever standing you have with him as his fuck buddy and his best friend to encourage him to be honest with his fiance about who he is, what he's capable of, what he's incapable of, obviously honoring a monogamous commitment, not capable of that, and what he wants going forward. Because it would be a mistake for him to marry this woman under these circumstances, under false pretenses about who he is and what he wants and what he's capable of. And you're not the ideal messenger as best friend and fuck buddy and invitee to the wedding. And you do have a massive conflict of interest here. And you say that you don't really want him for yourself, but you don't really want to lose him as a fuck buddy either, which makes me doubt that you are being honest when you say you don't really want him for yourself. You do want him at least as a fuck buddy for yourself. And you're likely actually to continue to have him as a fuck buddy for yourself, even if he gets married, because I don't think if you would fuck this guy three months before his wedding, you're going to stop fucking him after his wedding. And I don't think if he would fuck you three months before his wedding, he's going to stop fucking you after his wedding either. Seems to me that the person you should be thinking about marrying is you because you two deserve each other. Hey, Dan. So I've been dating this woman for over a year and 95% of the time she is fantastic. She is smart and she's funny and she's beautiful and I really cherish our relationship, but the other 5% of the time, um, she can get upset and she gets angry and she loses her mind. And I don't mean that in a bitch be crazy kind of way. I mean, like 
she gets drunk and she says hurtful things. She can get violent and um, it's not okay. So I, I have tried, I have gone through counseling myself. I know that she has abandonment issues. I know she has other issues and she has talked about them with me and has said that she's gone through counseling before and that she doesn't want to do it anymore because it's difficult. And I've told her about my counseling times and um, tried to let her know that it's not a stigma, that there's no judgment, that that can be helpful. But she's not really interested. The thing that I keep going back to is that if my sister or a female friend of mine came to me and said, I am dating this person and they are acting this way and sometimes they're violent and da 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 then I would tell them to run. And it seems different because she's small and I'm big and it's not usually a problem and most days it's great, but it doesn't feel great. And I know you can't ultimatum somebody into seeking counseling. I know that you can't force someone to try and work on themselves, that that's something they have to do for themselves. But I'm reaching 40 and I want a family and I'm getting older and I don't know what to do about when it's too much, when you can't accept it anymore and say, I don't want this to be my life and I don't want this to be the life of my kids. <sighs> I'm, I feel like I'm making it sound more dramatic than it usually is, but sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of dramatic. You've only been with this person for a year and it's awful 5% of the time. Talk to anyone who is in a long, long, long term relationship with someone who is abusive and often what you'll hear them say was, you know, at first it was great most of the time, 90, 95% of the time. He was lovely. It was awesome. It was great. And then 5% of the time it was terrible. He would get drunk. He would get violent, abusive, or she would get drunk. She would get violent. She would get abusive. And I stayed because it was just that 5%, because the 95% of the time that was so great was worth sort of plowing through that 5%. But here's the thing. That percentage grows over time. The longer you're there the bigger the percentage of that is awful gets. You'll go from 95% wonderful and 5% of the time awful to 10% of the time awful and 90% of the time to 80% or 70% of the time wonderful and 30% of the time awful. And eventually you're, it's flipped. Eventually it's 95% of the time awful and you're walking on eggshells all the time and this person is always blowing up at you randomly and you are married and you have children and, and getting the fuck out, getting away from this person is a lot harder. And that's what the abuser counts on. They police themselves for their abusive shit and keep a lid on it as best they can long enough to get you to a point where you can't escape or they don't think you can escape or the costs of escape are so great that you may continue to hesitate and they can keep ramping the abusive shit the fuck up. I don't know if this is conscious on the part of abusers or subconscious, but it is common. And I can see it coming. It is coming for you. You need to get the fuck away from this person. You shouldn't be contemplating having children with this person. The rage and the physical violence that she subjects you to when you are drunk 
She will subject your children, her children, to that same rage, to that same violence when she is drunk. And having kids is hard and it is stressful. And it can bring out the best in some of us. It can bring out the worst in some of us. It brings out the best and worst of us at different times and different measures. It's good to have a partner there so that when the pressures of parenting, you can feel bringing out the worst in you. You can step back and your partner can take over and you can relay race that shit a little bit. But you do not want to subject children. You don't want to bring children to home with someone that you know to be an abuser. And she is an abuser. Now, you can go to her and say, I have heard you say that getting into counseling was hard and unpleasant and that you don't want to go back there, but it can be helpful. And as of now, it's not just potentially a help. It is a condition of my continuing to see you. And this is a hallelujah pass where you say, if you want, we've been together a year. If you want to continue to date me, therapy and counseling for you because of this 5% and because of the likelihood that that 5% will grow over time, the longer I stick around, you need to get to work on that with a counselor as a condition of our continuing to see each other. And if she will not, because it's hard, because being in counseling is hard. Well, being in a relationship with her in this condition, that's hard too. And you have the option of going. And I would encourage you to go. But if you want to stay because you have family, because you want kids, and she might be the one that you want to have them with, if you want to invest a little more time in her, all right then, but she has to be in counseling. She has to be in therapy. She has to be working on her rage and anger and alcohol issues. And if she won't work on those things, then you really fucking have to go. You have to end this relationship. You've only invested a year. You're only 40. 40 is the new 22 or whatever the fuck. You can find someone else. You can get the fuck out. You can find someone who's not a ticking rage violence bomb just add alcohol. Hey, Dan. I'm from New York. I'm a... I'm a single male. Uh, I just had a, a very basic question for you. I've noticed with my guy friends, uh, a number of, of us are into feet, which is, you know, there's a little bit of a stigma around that. And I've wondered before, what is the reason behind that? You know, with breast, you could somehow add logic to that and, and say that it has to do with breastfeeding. Why do you think it is that so many, if not all, of my male friends are either a little bit into feet or a lot into feet, however you want to put it? Uh, why do you think that is? I'm just kind of curious if you had any thoughts on this. Uh, very basic question. I don't think your question is basic at all. I think your question is fascinating. But the question isn't why are some men into feet? The question is why are all your male friends into feet? You're the common denominator in this foot fetishist equation. I know a lot of guys, I have a lot of male friends and I've known a couple of foot fetishist friends, but they were outliers. It was rare. They were one of very few of my male friends who were into feet, had this particular relatively common fetish, but common in the fetish sense means like one in a thousand or one in a hundred that all of your friends are into feet. That baffles me unless foot fetishism is contagious, literally contagious. It's a bacteria it can be spread through the air. You can catch it because a foot fetishist sneezes on you at work. Nothing can explain this mystery. Nothing can unpack this mystery. Not all men are into feet. Foot fetishism, fetishism is kind of a constant. 
uh, a set percentage and new things come along and can be processed through our erratic imaginations and wind up being kinked. Latex clothing, for instance, didn't exist before the Second World War and now there's a whole latex fetish clothing industry and thing and that came along and it was new. But feet are old. Feet have been around probably for as long as we've been around and the numbers of people who fetishize them aren't going to grow. Not a new thing. So I can't answer this question. I have no idea why it is that all of your male friends are into feet. The only thing that could possibly explain it is coincidence or bullshitting. But you sounded sincere, so I suspect it's not bullshitting. My money's on coincidence. Hey, Dan. I'm a 15-year-old heterosexual male, and I, uh, I have a question about this girl. We're definitely interested in each other, but she doesn't want to date yet because she just got out of a long-term relationship, which, you know, I understand. That's, she doesn't want to jump right into anything, but what I don't understand is she, she always gets really, she gets really jealous when she doesn't really have the grounds to be jealous. When she bro- first broke up with her boyfriend, she went out to lunch and still hung out with him, which went just fine. You know, I, I mentioned it later though. I said, you know, I, I guess we're not dating, so I don't really, I can't say anything about it really, but I don't really like that you're going and having lunch with this, this guy. And she said, well, we're not really dating. So it's none of your business, which, which I respected. And I bought it out. Didn't worry about it. But then later I, I have, I have a friend who's, a female who is just a friend, nothing, nothing more. And I've been very clear to her that she is just a friend. And when I told her about it and that we were going to be hanging out, she got really like, she got really jealous and she got really distant and didn't want to talk and was very upset. And I don't really know what to think, you know? So my question is, what do I say? Because I don't want to upset her, but I also want to be able to hang out with my friends and not be limited to only male friends want to emphasize, want to highlight the fact for callers who may have been half paying attention that your 15 years old caller is 15 years old. This is high school drama. You get upset when she hangs out or goes out with guys until she reassures you that it is not a date. She gets upset when you see girls until you reassure her. Well, it doesn't work when you reassure her. She still gets upset whether or not you tell her it's a date or not. You two need to stay the fuck away from each other. You two either need to date and then be able to regulate who each other spends time with, which is a fool's errand, but very common for teenagers and hopefully something you will get over in short order. Or you need to not date. And if you're not dating, then you don't answer to each other. She can hang out and be with and see and even date whoever she wants. And so can you. Period. End of discussion. You don't answer to her. She doesn't answer to you. You are not each other's boyfriend or girlfriend. You are merely friends. And if being friends is this complicated, if it creates this much drama in your lives and this much anger and jealousy, you shouldn't even be friends. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old gay guy in the West Coast. My partner of seven years passed away suddenly last year. And since then, I've been grieving and also going to therapy but I'm at a point now where I want to start dating again. I don't know. I feel so young to be a widower stage in my life that I find it hard to relate with anyone. I mean, especially guys to talk to on Grindr and other dating apps. But having said that, I turn to porn and also message a lot of guys on apps for either just chat or meetups. I usually message a few new guys every day and will either try to set up a date or just treat naked pictures. I don't know. I've only hooked up twice since my partner's passing. I feel like I'm young and in shape, and I feel like I'm too young to be wearing a black veil. But I also don't know 
if it's healthy for me to basically be obsessed with grinder, scruff, gender, etc. <laughs> My therapist is sex positive and gay friendly, but I haven't brought this up to him because I just, I want your input first. I don't know what it means to be a young gay widower with a high desire for sex, naked pictures, sexting, attention, whatever. I also don't know if guys find me too hard to unpack once they find out about my partner's passing. I usually get, I'm so sorry, I can't imagine response from them. I guess it just boils down to me being lonely, horny, and afraid of how new guys I date will react to me best. I also just don't know how to be a 31-year-old gay widower and be out there again. You say you don't know how to be a 31-year-old gay widower, but you don't have to know how to do that because you are that. Right. And whatever you're doing is right. what a 31 year old gay widower would do. And I'm, my heart goes out to you and I'm really sorry. Uh, that said, if, if you feel that being on the apps is compulsive, if you feel that it's not bringing joy to you at a time where you may need to re-experience joy, then it's a problem. But if you're just slut shaming yourself or sex shaming yourself or desire shaming yourself in the wake of your partner's death, and again, my heart breaks for you, you need to not do that. You are, you are still alive and you have desire and, and needs and, and, and that's good. You know, those impulses to, to still reach out, to still, to still want is what will carry you through this time. It's not disrespectful to your partner or his memory or, your relationship to still want and still experience. Right. And I think I, I have gone through a couple of times in the last, I would say six, seven months where um, I did put those apps down and I can go on them for about a week and that felt okay. Um, I think it was more just like you said, just desire shaming myself and I didn't know exactly how to process it. And I'm still in the grieving process, which I accept I'm going to be in that process for a while. You know what? Whatever. You, you're just, going to be in that process forever. That, that, that kind of loss. Yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not comparing the two because the, the loss of a parent is to be expected. There's, I forget who first said it, but you know, to lose a parent is to lose your past, to lose a child is to lose your future and to lose a partner, to lose your spouse is to lose your present. Um, right. And I don't think that's a loss you ever fully recover from, nor should you feel obligated to. But also, you know, when you acknowledge that this is lost, you'll never fully recover from. Some people feel like it's disrespectful to the memory of their partner if they can move through a day or a week uh, appearing to be recovered from it or feeling recovered from it, or, you know, feeling sort of functional and fully reengaged with life. And, right. and that's not a betrayal of your partner or his memory to, to be fully reengaged with life and love and lust and desire and sex. It's not. And, and what I began to say, what I'm not comparing is when I lost my mother, which is an expected loss and a natural one, it took me a while to kick back into gear. And then when I did, I felt like, how can I be having sex in a world where my mother no longer exists, where I've lost my mother? How can I prioritize this or feel good about this? And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a fully rational response. And, and in my experience, it just that that feeling dissipated. That, I, that those weren't irreconcilable to live with the loss of my mother, but also live with desire that these weren't, I didn't have to choose one. Right. That they existed concurrently. Yeah. 
that, that sense of loss and that sense of desire. And I think, you know, I lost, um, I lost my father about four years ago and that was just a different experience for me. And I didn't realize how the two would be different. And, you know, it just, I've been through grief before, but this is uh, another level of grief. And I just, you know, I, the biggest reason why I called is because I, there's not many resources out there. You know, a lot of the stuff that I would see online is geared toward the traditional widower or widower. Mm-hmm. And the older um, crowd, you know, and I could relate to a lot of the things that I read online. I definitely related to a lot of them. But at the same time, you know, for a long time, yeah, uh, partners have been passing and people have been living their lives well into 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s mm-hmm. with their partners. Um, and I guess just because my loss was so sudden and I still young and so is he that it's sort of I felt like I feel like I'm on the fringe of something that I don't know how to even with therapy even with writing things out even mm. with talking with friends and sometimes I just <laughs> it's um I just you know I I don't know when I don't know that's when I have the impulses of just going on both apps and saying hi and trying to spark conversations and you know I'm I'm out there again and I, I accept that and you I know, also accept that. Yeah. And, and you're out there. Well, first of all, I wanted to say, you know, you, you say you don't necessarily feel comfortable in some of these spaces that are created for people who've lost their partners because a lot of them are for straight people and you don't have to be the tip right. of the spirit, but most spaces for married people, most spaces for coupled people weren't spaces where we were welcomed or, uh, or really understood spaces that felt in- inclusive to us until we burst into them until we claimed space in them. And you may join a bereavement group for young people who've lost their partners and they're out there and be the only gay guy in the room and the first gay guy in the room, but you're not going to be the last gay guy in the room and somebody has to be the first gay guy in the room. You don't have to be the tip of the spear. If you don't have that in you to be the first gay guy in the room, if you don't have to handle that at the same time that you're processing grief over the loss of your partner, don't guilt trip yourself about it. You don't have to, but we become present in those spaces when we enter them for the first time. Right. Um, that said, also you're getting online. One of the things that happens to people who've lost their spouse is you're, you know, you, you move through spaces feeling like this object of pity, feeling like the widow or widower and only that. And you know, your friends are probably still a little intimidated by the depth of your grief. And there are going to be times where it's going to feel really good and life affirming for you to not be that first to get online and have these flirty interactions where you aren't this ball of, you know, grief in the perception of the person that you're interacting with. When you're talking to your friends, I'm sure the first thing, the most present thing in their minds right now is, Oh my God, he has suffered such a tremendous loss and they handle you with kid gloves and they handle you in this very respectful way. And, and they should, and that's what you need, but you also need the opposite. You need people that you interact with who that's not the most present thing in their minds when they're talking with you. Maybe what you need is some people you interact with who the most present thing in their mind when they're talking with you is they wonder what your dick looks like. Not because that's disrespectful to you or your partner, but because that's life and lust and love. And that's a, a, an energy that that's within all of us. That's life affirming to desire and be desired means to, you know, desire is about something happening in the future. 
And you had, and I'm so sorry, it's going to make me cry to talk about it. I can't imagine how you feel. The future you had with your partner got cut off. And that, that future that you imagined with him and you had with him is, is, is not to be. But what desire says is there's other futures that are possible for you. And you want to be able to tap into that. Right. And the memorial yeah. you build to your partner is not denying yourself a future. Or futures with other guys. Is not, ha- not, not having other experiences. In other yeah, contexts, so. the, the only caveat, the only thing I would say, and you should process this with your therapist. And, and I'm, the one thing I am going to order you to do is talk to your therapist about this, about your, your conflicted feelings about the apps and your presence on them. You say you're going to a gay positive uh, therapist to, to process your grief. Open up about this concern too. If it's not compulsive, okay. if it's not self-negating, if after you have these interactions you don't feel worse, then go for it. Then it's the right thing to yeah, do. Yeah, I've been on for about five, six months, and it's just a mixed bag. Of sometimes I feel better by myself because I have good interactions and conversations, and you know, and that makes me feel good. And I'll have days, or it's been you know a few times where it's been weeks where I've had good interactions, and then it's a mixed bag with the rest of it. <laughs> um, a mixed bag so because you good. encountered some shitty people, which we all encounter sometimes, or a mixed bag because you end up feeling. Like you're there for the wrong reason, whether you're encountering good or bad people, which is it? Uh, probably about the same. I mean, don't get me wrong. I haven't been disrespected at all about that. And mm-hmm. I usually try to save that little negative information until I get to know somebody a little more. Oh, oh. yeah. I, I, throw that out. I didn't mean when you roll out the information about being a recent widower. I meant when you say sometimes the interactions are bad, I just thought, you know, if what you're getting, you know, sometimes you go and you have good interactions and you feel good about yourself, you feel good about them. Um, and so it feels like the right place to be, but sometimes you're going to get on an app or walk into a gay bar and have a bad interaction. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have gotten on the app or walked in the gay bar. It just means you right. didn't meet the right person that time. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have been there. It doesn't mean that that impulse to go there was necessarily the wrong impulse or, or, or an impulse you shouldn't have acted on. It's just like sometimes you go out and you meet jerks. Sometimes you go out and you meet right. somebody you needed to meet at that moment, whether it was or an evening, a weekend, a month, the rest of your life. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's a new normal for me, and um, every day it's a new, uh, a new process, a new normal. <laughs> and um, but I'm going day by day, and so you know, it's little stuff like this, just reaching out guidance, I guess. And that's why I wanted to give you a call. I'm so glad you called me back. Well, I'm my heart goes out to you, and I'm glad we were able to get on the phone. And again, nothing about desire negates your feelings for your late partner or uh, in any way undermines the profound nature of your grief. You can have both. Okay. I'm learning that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and my, my heart goes out to you. My heart breaks for you. I'm so sorry. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. Hi, I'm a 32 year old woman and I've been with my spouse for eight years, married for six of those. He's the only man, only person that I've had sex with. I identify as somewhat asexual, but I definitely do feel romantic and sexual attraction sometimes, such as for my husband, who I do love very much and whom I know loves me as well. But for about the past year, I've been wanting to test out some openness in our relationship, mainly around physical intimacy, just simple things like cuddling, physical closeness, maybe kissing, 
it's not about sex. And I think more about feeling open and connected to others. In fact, I don't want to have sex outside of my marriage. I think that my husband is a bit asexual too. And in some ways we're very compatible in that way and both happy with somewhat infrequent sex. I'm also the only person that he's ever had sex with. The point is, I'm a bit confused by these contradictory feelings of, on the one hand, feeling fairly asexual, but on the other hand, wanting to be physically close with multiple people. I'm afraid that if I raise the question of monogamishness, that he won't understand this paradox either. And I'm hoping that you might be able to shed some light on this and give me some understanding or insight that could be helpful as I get ready to have this conversation with my husband. I feel like this is hard to approach because if it's not about sex, it's going to be even harder for him to understand why I'd be looking for anything outside of our relationship. There's a confounding variable here too, or well, maybe an explanatory one, and that is that I struggle with depression and for the past year, it's been worse than usual. My husband doesn't understand this side of me, but I've I've talked a lot to two other people who happen to be two Um, male friends in particular about this who understand depression and who I can be much more candid with about it and who have perspectives of their own to offer. These are in particular the two I'd like to be able to be physically close and comfortable with, especially as we discuss these sensitive things, and I know that they would like that too. In some ways it would help ease and goes along with the emotional intimacy that's helping me get through this depressive episode. My husband knows that I've been talking with them about this, but I feel like having a conversation about some openness in our relationship would help ease my guilt about this and also give me the freedom to take honestly pretty PG physical comfort in these men. I would be willing to allow him the same, of course, but I don't honestly know if he would be interested. Anyway, am I being selfish here? Um, what things should I think about as I, as I think about this? You're asexual and your husband, you believe, is similarly situated, perhaps also asexual. Sex is infrequent and not an important part of your relationship and your connection. But intimacy is important. Cuddling, kissing, holding. You share these things with your husband and presumably they are the most important form of intimacy that you share with your husband because sex isn't that important to you. Sex isn't that important to him. And this connection the holding, the kissing, the cuddling, that physical closeness, that physical intimacy that many asexual people say that they desire in a a relationship, that they want physical intimacy, they want comfort, they want a, a connection that is reinforced by that kind of physical intimacy and comfort, but they don't want sex. So for people who are sexual, people like me, for the text of the at risk youth, it can sound like what you want to ask your husband for is something trivial or trifling. You just want to cuddle with somebody else, just want to maybe kiss someone else. And and that's small beans. Well, yeah, but it's not small beans. If that is the most important form of intimacy that you share with your husband, if that is the foundational intimacy in your eight year relationship, what you're asking from your husband is actually something large. You're asking for a, a, a big thing. You're asking to share with other men the kind of intimacy that you have up to now only shared with him. And you're not talking about sex. You're talking about the more important kind of intimacy for you, cuddling, kissing, holding. And you have this desire to do that with others. And maybe your husband would regard the request as trivial. Maybe he's more sexual than you are. But I doubt it because it sounds like this is a very 
significant aspect of your intimacy, of your connection with your husband. Now, your question to me is, how do I roll this out? How do I unpack this? Not to yourself. It sounds like you have a pretty firm grasp of this. What you're asking me is, how do I unpack this to my husband so as not to upset or alarm him? And I don't have an answer there because I can't predict how your husband will react to this request. It seems to me that you just have to speak your truth. You have to say what it is that you want and need right now, where you have this feeling, this this desire to be intimate in this way, to be physically close in this way with other men at this moment and that you don't have a full understanding of uh, of what it means. And maybe it's tied to your depression, but this is what you're feeling. And you should be able to share with your husband these thoughts, these, these, these impulses, these feelings. You should be able to unpack them with him and process them with him without a, a guaranteed answer, without knowing in advance how he's going to react and without knowing in advance whether he's going to give you his consent. And it's a risky conversation. There's no way to avoid that. And it could be an intensely awkward conversation and it could for him be a potentially hurtful conversation, but it sounds for you like this is a necessary conversation and, and a place you need to go and a conversation that you need to have. And who knows, maybe having the conversation will result in you and your husband reconnecting in a way that leads to the evaporation of these feelings that leads to you not feeling this impulse of this strong desire to connect physically with other men. Maybe this is a desire to find outside your marriage what you're not getting inside your marriage right now. And that conversation will prompt your husband to step up or prompt you to look at each other through, through new eyes and, and re-cement your connection. And you may not feel as strongly about wanting to be physically intimate with others in this way after this conversation, though I doubt it. Sounds like you really do need this. And very often that is not the case, that having the conversation leads to the desire evaporating. But you can't have the conversation without risk. You can't have the conversation without potentially upsetting your husband. And I can't tell you how to feel about this or how to, to, to understand it. You say you don't fully understand these impulses and these feelings. The only way to come to a fuller understanding of your impulses and feelings is to think about them and talk about them, not with your friendly neighborhood faggot sex advice podcaster, but with your husband. And in the unpacking with him, not the unpacking with me, you will come to a deeper understanding of the significance and importance of this for you uh, and how much you're willing to risk to have it in your life, this intimacy with us. And who knows, maybe it'll be a great big nothing burger. Maybe you'll go to your husband and say, would it be all right if when I have these conversations with my friends who understand depression because they've suffered it too, that we lay with each other, hold each other and, and are intimate with each other, not sexual, no sex, just physical contact. And your husband might look at you and go, oh, that's no problem. Or he might look at you and have a lot of questions. He might look at you and feel insecure or jealous, but there's only one way to find out how he's going to react and that's to go to him and to begin to unpack this, not with me again, but with him. Hi, Dan. This is a young woman in Wisconsin calling to you with an etiquette question. Do I need someone's consent to give them sex advice, which might make them uncomfortable? Uh, the story is I went on a date with this guy who seemed to be pretty great, uh, not a misogynist, not stupid, didn't mansplain things to me. We had a really nice time, had shared interests, um, so I followed him back to his apartment and everything went downhill. My impression was that this guy was pretty inexperienced and his knowledge of sex had come from low-quality porn, which he was then trying to recreate with me. 
since I had no interest in recreating low-quality porn with him. I hadn't texted since that night. Um, and then a couple weeks ago, he texted me, trying, trying to start something up. So I said to him, look, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed the 30-minute hand job. I didn't actually say that. I said, I'm glad you enjoyed it and had a nice time. And could I give you some advice? And then silence. After the, could I give you some advice text, I didn't hear, didn't hear anything from him for a week and a half. And then I sent him sort of a follow-up text. That should I interpret your silence as you don't want to hear the advice? Or should I interpret your silence as you're waiting for me to say something? Um, that was a few days ago now, and I still haven't heard from him. So part of me says, well, just let this go. Let there be another sexually inept man out there in the world, uh, frustrating women like me. But then another part of me says, he's, he's a good guy. I think he's actually a decent person. And if I phrase his advice in such a way that he could actually hear it, absorb it, and change his behavior, maybe he could be a GGG partner for somebody in the future. He's obviously not interested in your critique of his performance. That doesn't mean he wouldn't benefit from it potentially. So maybe you should let it rip in that text and give him that download. You can sugarcoat it. You can, and it's not really sugarcoating. It's truth telling that you thought he was a decent guy and a nice guy and a good guy, but perhaps an inexperienced one based on what went down that night or what didn't go down that night. There are a lot of people out there who are inexperienced sexually and experience with intimacy and partnered sex, but who've watched a lot of porn. Porn all too often is the default sex educator these days. And it can leave somebody with a repertoire of moves that can be off-putting because real sex and partnered sex ain't porn. I'm a big fan of makelovenotporn.com, Cindy Gallup's program, which is pro-sex, pro-porn, and pro-knowing the difference. And perhaps this guy doesn't know the difference. Maybe instead of the point-by-point -point critique of his performance, you could just send him the link to makelovenotporn.com. And he can, if he's so motivated, do a little reading and surfing around, and maybe that will inspire him to be introspective. Or not. He may not be receptive to what you have to say. He, you might not be the right messenger. But if you'll feel better to get it off your chest, I think when you've had sex with somebody and you have a feeling – you're allowed to share that feeling and you two had sex and you had a feeling about it. And if there's something you need to say and you think it might benefit that person to hear it, you should go ahead and say it. All right. We're going to take a short break from your calls to have a conversation with Seattle dominatrix, mistress Matisse, frequent guest, guest expert, sex workers, rights activist, and you have a new gig. I do. I do have a new uh, uh, string to my bow. I am now a pot entrepreneur. Tell us about it. Oh, I would love to. I would love to tell you all about it. Uh, the name of my pot brand is Velvet Swing. Uh, and that's uh, an archaic slang term for fucking or a woman's pussy, depending on how it was used. Uh, and I thought that would be a great... Wait, what? A slang term for pussy that I was not familiar with? Where uh, did you find it? Some, one of my you know, horror history books. I was reading it and uh, yeah, it was... That was to, to, to do the velvet swing was meant to fucking or but you could also refer to her velvet swing, meaning her pussy. Wow. That was totally a thing. It's so evocative. It's really a pretty good one. I thought no, I like this one. I like this one. It's kind of, yeah. So what is Velvet Swing the the pot product? Uh I'm gonna have a line of pot products. They're all gonna be intimacy oriented pot products. Um mostly at least, although we might find like some aphrodisiac like pre-rolls to do. Uh but my first product is uh an amazing, an amazing pot lubricant. 
And that's, uh, to call it a pot lube is really not doing it justice. It is a topical pot product that you apply and you absorb into your skin and that it makes women have longer, stronger orgasms. How does putting pot on your pussy make you have a longer, stronger orgasm? How does that work exactly? It's a magic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had my, my scientist, uh, Chelsea. So this all started because I, I, I was sitting in my living room and I had noticed that I, I tried certain pot you know things and and sometimes I would have really amazing orgasms like these I'm like, I'm like why can't I make that happen every single time like mm-hmm. I want that to happen every single time sometimes you get high and you're super horny and super responsive and sometimes oh, yeah. you get high and you just want to watch right handmaid's tale and <laughs> But even like no matter because I experimented with this, like mm-hmm. I tried to do some science. I like even when I was not feeling like horny, I would like try to and see if the you know is it like always when I'm high I have amazing orgasms. Like no, there's just certain times. And I went to my friend Chelsea and I said, I want this all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want this feeling to happen every single time. And you have to make me this product, and we're gonna make it together. And, and it works. And it works. And so it's a personal lubricant that you use for vaginal intercourse you can't i mean it's not a like you have a bottle of lube that you use just to ease friction mm-hmm. um velvet swing is, is a product that you apply to your body you know it, and it does lubricate you to somewhat but it's also it is, it is taking an action in your body like the mm-hmm. cbds and the thd um you can only absorb so much of that through your skin mm-hmm. so velvet swing does not make you high in the sense that we understand being high what it does is uh, the action of the, the the drugs open the capillaries toward to your that lead to your Sweet spot, your junk, your bits, <laughs> your whatever you want to call it, your 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 sexy parts, uh, and it makes blood come and things get all engorged in a really nice way. And does it have a psychotropic effect? Do you get a little stoned? Do you get a little buzz from it? Too? Some people report. Some people who are very lightweight, because like, you with any pot product, you know, you rub into your skin. You just there's a real limit to how much your your body can absorb. And, but some people report feeling a very mild sense of like, ooh, I feel kind of. Hmm. But it's not going to be like you could function like if something caught fire or something mom <laughs> called or whatever. You could like stand up and deal with a situation that's not like that. Uh, so I will say that it layers really nicely if you like pot with mm-hmm. other pot products. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually really my ideal, which is why I want to create a line of things that would be used kind of synergistically, uh, in my opinion, to create the most awesome orgasm that you could ever have. So Irish Spring had this these commercials had another 40-year-old pop culture reference for the kids out there. <laughs> Irish Spring soap, strong enough for a man, but I like it too, would say the woman. So this is a product designed for... For women, yes. For women, for vaginas, not a woman of vaginas, yes. but for women who with vaginas, which is almost all of them, you, most of them. But can uh, people use it on their butts uh, too? People, Ask the gay guy. People, I can absolutely use it in your butt. It will make you high if you put it in your butt. So you have to not mind being high. Not super high like Aww. you are. Like, I have to be high and <laughs> fucked? Oh, I don't know. You do. I know. You hate that. The tissue inside your ass is a highly absorbent thing. Like you're, a, a pussy is actually pretty well designed to repel you know, invaders of, of the wrong kinds. It's, it has little defense systems. But your ass is like, no, no, come in and, you know, and I will absorb you and I'll Into be my bloodstream high. directly. Yeah, right, right. So that is the thing about Velvet Swing. Uh, my next product uh, is going to be a product that will be enjoyed by anyone of any gender. Um, and uh, I'm going to tell you about it. And you're the first person to actually be told officially about it. And I wanted to tell you because um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say two words that do, don't sound sexy. But you're going to have to believe me when I say that I'm going to make them sexy. Anal suppository. 
<laughs> well, I'm just going to say that first, so you know what we're talking about. I call them white diamonds. We're going to make white diamonds, and they are little. I think the Liz Taylor estate might have something to say. Uh, we about looked that. in. No, it's not a top. We're not copyright infringing. It's oh not, really? Yeah, oh yeah. Legally, we can do this. It's like no one's going to mistake my a like, fragrance uh, for a butt stuff. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, this is a THC thing that you put in your ass. This is that's what this is. Is it like a gel cap that dissolves in your ass? It's like a little waxy, you know, bullet. Mm-hmm. It's a small, and you put up your ass, and it's whew, okay. Does it exist yet? Uh, it is we, yeah, as we speak. It is we are in the final stages of manufacturing it, and then submitting it for approval to the state. You know, you got to go to the state and you know make your obeisance, and they ha- and I can't like I, I want to be bureaucrats in Washington State now who <laughs> went into being a state bureaucrat not expecting that one day they would have to sign off on. THC butt suppository. I'm like, can I go? I want to go when we go down there to talk. That's quite like, yeah, you put it up your ass and then you have sex. That's well, ideally the thing. Uh, a couple of the tech savvy at risk youth who have vaginas tested out your product and loved it. So that's why we wanted to have you on. Really? I'm so happy. And I will when the uh, suppository comes you out. You will. I will be the beta tester for that. I, oh, I'm so honored by this. I'm so <laughs> honored by this. Yeah, you will. I will make sure that you get the initial, the virgin offerings that will be presented to you. But yeah, white diamonds. And I, yeah, I thought about Liz Taylor too. Because of who, who doesn't want their lever to bring them a white diamond? And to stuff it in their butt. But I wanted something for women who did not use pot a lot and were kind of curious about something and wanted to kind of, you know, as we say, spice up their sex life, but didn't really know how to approach that. So Velvet Swing, where can people find that online? Well, you can find it online at velvetswing.com, but you have to buy it in one of Washington's very fine pot shops. I get so many people saying, can you ship it to them? I'm like, no, I am legally forbidden to yeah, ship these it. State, in states that have uh, regulated legal uh, pot markets, the products have to be yeah. born and raised and grown and product and sold oh, within the state. So if you want to try Velvet Swing out, you're going to have to get your – Get uh, and if you want to try white diamonds out when they're coming online, <laughs> you're going to have to literally get your ass to Washington State to give it a chance. We're working really hard to be in California by the end of the year, uh, and then we'll see where we get next. But it's, uh, you know, it's just, uh, this is what happens with legalization of a thing. It's like you're like, oh, I have to obey all these rules. Mm, okay, but we do. Uh, so, yeah, we're working really you're a, hard. You're a not legalization activist when it comes to sex work, but a decriminalization activist right, when it comes to sex work. And this is why. <laughs> <laughs> because you wanted to have no role. The state of Washington is doing the best it can, I think. This is they're trying to adapt with the situation. But it, for, to us, it's like there's new rules every week, mm-hmm. literally. I'm like, wait, what? We can't, you know. So it's a little frustrating. And yeah, I'd prefer just decriminalize it and leave us alone. But I understand that these, this has to happen this way. You know, people have to be protected. So I'm not. I'm not uh, complaining. We get to have You are it. going to follow the rules when I it comes to pot. I am. I am. We do all the time, every day. All right. Well, since we have you here, can we uh, throw a couple of questions at you? Yes, please. Hi, man. I'm a 31-year-old single woman, and I've been single for about a year. After my breakup last year, I decided to explore my kink side, and I've been very fortunate with the kink community in my city, and I've been a wonderful, caring, and trustworthy dom. We've been taking it slow and have mostly been playing with biting and impact, which leaves beautiful bruises in places where one may not usually find bruises. I love everything about playing with my dom, including the marks, but I never expected to have to explain to someone what they are. My dom and I are not romantic, and we are both open to other options and other partners. A few weeks ago, I was on a business trip and met a person I'm very attracted to. We're loosely considered co-workers, and we work together for a week. However, in our jobs, a romantic relationship between co-workers wouldn't present an issue. 
We spent every evening at dinner together and stayed up talking late into the night every night. He lives in a city not too far from me, but far enough that trips to see each other would need to be planned in advance. When we left, it was clear that we were both interested in one another, but no plans were made to see each other again. I thought I would come home and see what comes of it. When I came home, I promptly got all marked up by my dom. And yesterday, my boss asked me to travel to the city where my new interest lives. I'll be going there Monday, and I have a couple of intense bruises that I don't think will be gone by the time I see him. We haven't been physical yet, and I'm wondering if we should be, considering that he will definitely notice bruises in intimate places. I'm wondering if this is a situation where sex or any kind of fooling around should be off the table until we have more concrete discussions about our sexuality. But then again, seeing each other will be rare, and I don't want to miss an opportunity to at least explore a little bit and find out if we are even remotely compatible. We've been talking and texting a lot since we met, but I was planning on taking your advice and doing my own thing with other partners until things were defined and commitments were made. But bruising kind of brings that conversation to the forefront immediately. What's your advice, Dan? Should I leave all my clothes on or should I dive right in? So what should she do? Mysterious bruises, new partner. Oh yeah. It's a question of like, okay, you can lie now, but you'll have to unwind it later if you if they stick. Like you can go with the oh, I like martial arts. And it's just kind of a, <laughs> you know, thing like that. Uh or you can come out and risk kind of the person being weirded out by that. But and being judgy and the relationship not going. But if the person's judgy about your sexuality and your kinks, do you want to have a relationship with that person at all anyway? That's yeah, bingo. That's exactly where my mind leads to is I mean, I, you know, sound the sound this person out and, you know, they could legitimately have uh, stuff that's happened to them that's traumatic that kind of makes them fearful about this. That's not judgy. That's just like, okay, I have concerns, anxieties, and that's legit. And you can talk about that. Yeah, like a guy who grew up in a household with domestic violence, whose mother was constantly covered with bruises and it wasn't about consent and joy. It was, and, and for him to be with someone that may unearth all sorts of unpleasant associations and memories and traumas and not be fun for him. So, yeah. So I, th- so I think it's like, it's important for us to say that people can have concerns and not be judgy and not be, really rule themselves out. But yeah, if it becomes, but yeah, better to find out now. Right. Yeah. I think you should tell him. And yeah. obviously the caller was so articulate about her desires and the activities she's engaged in mm-hmm. and, and seemed very present and, right. and persuasive even. Yeah. About it. So I don't think that caller, you'll really have a problem unpacking this with someone that you might be interested in getting no. with. Yeah. I mean, everyone's heard of Fifty Shades of Grey. Everyone's heard of rough sex. We all know that happens. And you can say to this person, I, I don't expect this from you. Right. This is something that right. I enjoy with somebody I have a dom sub dynamic with, but there's all sorts of other things I enjoy with other people. So don't think that you have to bust out the biting or the impact plagues. That's not required and it's not necessarily what i want out of every relationship that i'm in well she said she wasn't having a romantic relationship with her dom and i think that would be the biggest hurdle to 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 get into because people like they just can't grok that no it's a bdsm relationship but we don't have a romantic relationship or even a sexual relationship or whatever that's a hard people like no that's your boyfriend and you do the thing like that's going to be the harder part than the fact that you're kinky i think it sometimes helps to describe it as bowling or bungee jumping i have a friend that i go bungee jumping with yeah not everybody likes to bungee jump and i don't like to bungee jump with people who don't like to bungee jump okay but it's this activity and this physically taxing activity hiking or whatever skydiving and i do that with this person but it's not 
romantic. We're bungee jumping together. But there is an erotic element. Of course, it can't be denied to be some activity. It is about <laughs> orgasms and arousal. But it's different. It can be compartmentalized in a way that sets it aside from the usual kind of intimacy and sex mixed together track. Yes. For some, a lot of people have BDSM relationships that are very much mixed up with intimacy yeah. and, and sex and a sexual connection and a romantic connection. Yeah, I think that'll be, that'll be her biggest hurdle, but if this guy's worth it, then she'll be able to do it. And if the guy bolts, then he wasn't worth your time anyway. Indeed. He was the wrong partner for you and you for him. Hi, Dan et al. Um, I'm a 28-year-old bi girl living in an East Coast city, and I have kind of a strange situation I wanted your take on. So I'm in a monogamous relationship, have been for a long time, and um, we both enjoy flirting with other people, all of that good stuff, hooking up with other people. Recently, I was out with some friends, and a coworker mentioned that he had been attracted to me for a long time. So throughout the night, I thought that this was like kind of sexy and it made me feel pretty powerful and like just sexually powerful, I guess. So I was enjoying it. I was kind of asking him questions about it. During the course of our conversation, he revealed to me that he was having some personal troubles in his own life. And he was asking me questions about like relationships and things of that nature, sort of opening up to me. Then, at the end of the night, he was drunk, I wasn't, and he makes a move, which normally would be no problem. I could say, yeah, I'm into it, or no, I'm not. However, um, when he goes to kiss me, he also went to choke me, like, really hard, um, to the point where I couldn't speak, and I'm laying there thinking, like, oh my gosh, something terrible is about to happen, which, you know, it didn't. However, this has left me feeling pretty conflicted like I was feeling like kind of turned on and like interested in the whole situation and then that being added onto it is just making me feel confused so I don't know and I am wrong for not speaking up and saying something when that happened even though it was like hard to physically speak or should I confront him about it now since we still continue to like see each other socially in our social group or is he in the wrong and did he do something kind of stupid or does it matter that he was, he was drunk and I was less drunk? Like, I don't know. Something terrible did happen. Yeah. She says, I was afraid something terrible might happen. It, it didn't. It, it did. It did. He did. He attacked you, sweetheart. He like, you were kissing him and he physically assaulted you and that's not okay. It's and just, she's blaming herself for not speaking up in the moment when she couldn't speak because he was choking her. I don't know what is up with that. I think choking has become this thing that vanilla people think isn't kinky and they, they don't need to understand. How'd that happen? I, I am baffled by that, too. I really am. Now, the, the answer that a lot of people will instantly leap to, and maybe they're right, is porn. Is porn normalizing choking? I don't watch a lot of straight porn. Is there choking in a lot of straight porn? I don't watch a lot either. So uh, I, I think that there probably is. And yeah, I think it's just become this, this kind of go-to thing, like a power move uh, that people think is sexy and safe and, and okay to just do randomly. I and mean, I'm like, this is not like pinching somebody's nipples. It's just different to cut off someone's air and they're speaking and like, you don't do that. So what this guy did was wrong. Uh, she's totally right to feel kind of conflicted and confused by the whole thing because she was attacked uh, by a guy that she kind of liked and was into until he did this shit to and her. And he mixed with something she did want, which was for him to make a move for him to right. kiss her with something that she wasn't expecting and 
did not want and did not enjoy, which was the fucking choking. Right. And you can tell when a guy is about to kiss you. Like, you was like, okay, so, and, and she wanted him to. Like, she like, was into it. Uh, but she did not consent to or expect choking, and no one should just expect to be choked on a first kiss. That's just really not how you do that. Some people do like to be choked. Yeah. And I don't think anybody likes to be choked in an erotic sense suddenly to the point where they can't breathe or speak, which seems to have been the case here. And I hate to like roll out how you might like incorporate a little choking without advanced negotiation because I think that it's a varsity kink that should be discussed and negotiated and consent should be granted and safety should be something that you talk about. But if you're interested in choking, like use your fucking words and talk about it. And there are a lot of people interested in it on both sides. I get letters from guys who are uncomfortable because their girlfriends like to be choked. Yeah. And they feel uncomfortable meeting that need and doing that for them. But if you're going to like bust it out as a surprise move, like when you're maybe drunk, your hands move toward their throat and if they like get more aroused and encourage you to keep going, maybe yeah. then. But even then, I don't want to smile at that. I don't yeah. want to like give that my blessing yeah. because it is a kink that needs to be discussed. Like yeah. the kinksters do, like the hardcore BDSM yes. identified fetish community folks do. You need to negotiate that. That needs to be on your list of possible activities, recognizing that it's a dangerous varsity level activity and people have fucking died. Yes. And it's it's a, a violent move. Like it's not, yeah, like it's not, there are other things you could do that are like intense or painful and sudden and would not be okay. But that is, as you say, a varsity move. And yeah, you didn't negotiate it. It's not. This is not common. He's drunk. Uh, these are like everything about this is just like no. And drunk. No. She's saying that should, does he deserve a pass because he was drunk? No, he doesn't deserve he a pass because he was drunk. Should she say something to him? Yes, you should fucking say something. To yeah, him. you totally should. Uh, what should she say if we were going to like craft you, some language? You shouldn't have choked me. You didn't have my consent to do that. We hadn't discussed it. Um, it's a dangerous thing to do. You don't know whether or not I'm into it. That could have uh, been traumatizing for me. That could have been triggering for me. What if I'd been attacked in the past? What if I was, like many women, a victim of sexual assault or rape, and it began with the person grabbing me by the throat and threatening my life? That like It's just not a move you bust out. It is not. It is not. And I'm sure there are people who like, no, I wish people would just ring, you know, come up and choke me. I'm like, well, it's okay for you to fantasize about that. But tops get to have limits too. Uh, and it should be that you don't just randomly choke someone that you haven't discussed that with. And that's... That's what that is a, a a boundary that a responsible top would have is to say, yeah, we're going to talk about that first. I think part of what may be confusing the caller is a lot of this discourse out there in consent land about how the person who is intoxicated is always less culpable. That if somebody is drunk, they cannot consent. So she was sober or on the sober end of the spectrum and he was drunk and they were being intimate. So maybe she feels a little guilty or conflicted about her complicity or culpability in that situation because she shouldn't have been encouraging him to do anything or and, and like call her. No, 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 no. You were not asking for it. Yeah, you, you were not. You were not asking for it. You did nothing wrong. He, and if it was uh, an instance where his alcohol consumption lowered or obliterated his inhibitions and he busted this move out. He needs to be made aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. This this whole thing makes me feel really uneasy. Like he I should gotta, not be fucking drinking if his go-to move when he's drunk is to assault someone or bust out a move that he's fantasized about or seen in porn that and, that... and that's my what my gut tells me. It's like he's seeing, he's seeing it in a movie or something and he thinks it's a cool thing to do and it's really not. Uh, uh, yeah, it's really not. He, yeah, say something to him. Drink less, buddy. Uh, don't choke women. 
Use yeah. your fucking words. Yeah. Like those, that kink is fine. Some people like that. I'm not one of those people and I'm still a little pissed off and upset and you being drunk doesn't get you off the fucking hook <laughs> and me being sober doesn't mean I was the guilty party or the responsible party. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Slap the shit out of this guy. I like I like that image. Yeah, I'm enjoying the idea for slapping all that. Well, not, not literally slap the shit. <laughs> figuratively, we're not saying like uh, he did. He performed an act of violence. If you go revenge yourself, no, no, no. You need to slap some sense into him. Figuratively, not Although, literally. In my mind, I'm like, go, my sister, slap him, just slap <laughs> him. Uh, but that no, that would not be the right thing to do. Do what Dan says. Absolutely, do what Dan says. Mistress Macis, thank you so much for coming in today. Good luck with Velvet Swing. Oh, it's amazing. I'm having a great time, and uh, thank you. And I look forward to uh, being able to deliver you some white diamonds, too. I can't wait to try your butt stuff. <laughs> Dan, I live to hear you say that. This is why I you're really a marketer and I'm not, because I would probably call it pot butt stuff, <laughs> which no one would buy. Not nearly as enticing a thing to shove up your ass as a white diamond. A white diamond. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I will definitely bring you some. It's hot off the press. If you're interested in pot entrepreneurism or sex workers' rights, you yeah. should be following Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse because she is an awesome sex workers' rights activist. And if you're curious about the sex workers' rights movement, curious about decriminalization versus legalization, any of these issues, uh, you will find your way into interesting conversations about them if you follow Matisse on well, Twitter. Thank and you, you very much. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a first-time caller but long-term listener. Uh, I'm 22, and for the first time in my life, I had an orgasm, and it was awesome. It was with my vibrator, and, um, well, it's kind of having an issue with my boyfriend, because now I can't really come when I sleep with him. And I never came before, I guess, but it's kind of like, I know how good it is, and now I'm, uh, like, I can't come in any other way besides my vibrator, and it's kind of frustrating, but it's also weird, because I never came with him. So I'm wondering... What I should do, we tried playing with the vibrator, but he just, like, didn't know where to put it, and then there was no way to have sex with him while using the vibrator, and I didn't, I just, it was so frustrating that I don't ever want to try that again, so, anyways, any advice would be really helpful. Important to keep emphasizing that when you were just sleeping with him, when you were just doing presumably PIV intercourse with him and maybe a little oral with him, you weren't coming. So it's not that you can't come now with him as a result of using the vibrator. You were not coming with him prior to the vibrator. You weren't coming prior to the vibrator. So the vibrator is the tool that you need to build your orgasms and you need to figure out a way to incorporate that into sex with the boyfriend. The mistake you may be making, and I'm inferring here, and I'm not able to call you back because you didn't leave a callback number. I wish you had. But the mistake you may be making is that you are attempting to have a simultaneous orgasm. You want to incorporate the vibrator into PIV intercourse, and you want to come at the same time he does. That's going to be a problem if you're not very dexterous, if you're not very coordinated, if it, you find it difficult to be in the moment and be having sex and also using a vibrator on your own clit. If it's about an insertable vibrator and you need that insertable, that deep vibe to come, well, come before you do PIV with him, come after you do PIV with him. If it's about applying the vibrator to your clit during sex with him and you're having a hard time holding it in place or he's having a hard time holding it or it's a distraction or it interferes with the positions that you usually enjoy, well, there are other kinds of vibrators out there in the world, including smaller ones. There are vibrators that are built into harnesses that you can wear even during PIV and you can just continue to experiment with 
managing these two things at once, chewing and walking gum, getting fucked and maneuvering around with that vibrator or him fucking you and maneuvering around with that vibrator at the same time. You can make this happen for yourself. Some women need a vibrator to come. And it's not that they trained their bodies. You were having PIV with your boyfriend long before you busted out that vibrator. It's not that they trained their bodies to be dependent upon that kind of stimulation, although that is perhaps the case with some women. They become dependent on a certain kind of stim, just like some men carve a deep hole in their dicks by holding them too hard and they get what I like to call death grip syndrome. But it doesn't sound like that's the case here. This is what you need to come. You need that vibrator incorporated into partnered sex if you're going to come during partnered sex. And you and your boyfriend have to figure this out and figure it out together and tell your boyfriend from me not to resent the vibrator. The vibrator is the tool that you can use or he can use to build your orgasms. And nobody looks at a house when somebody's done and says, oh, you used a hammer when you built that? Well, you didn't really build that house. The hammer did. It's just a tool. It's a hammer. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old straight man married to a 31-year-old woman. Um, we are uh, both uh, we're in a monogamous relationship and we are very sexually open and have a very good sex life and had been kicking around the idea of going to a sex show together for a while. But the idea of a bunch of other men hitting on my wife and, and, and touching her made her very uncomfortable. She, she said that she did not feel safe in, a, in an atmosphere like that. Um, we're performers by trade and, and we were um, performing in a, a different city and uh, I had the idea of that um, maybe we could go to a swingers party. So we looked one up and found one and went through all the, the whole thing of registering and got there and we had to show our IDs. And there was this strict policy of men not being aggressive and that made her feel very comfortable. Um, so we got in there and um, not a lot going on. kind of felt like a high school party where the guys were on one side and the girls were on the other and not a whole hell of a lot was, was happening. And, we thought we'd give it the old college try and stick around for a while and see, see what happened. But uh, um, we were ultimately forced to leave early. Um, we found a kind of a private corner and we're sitting there talking about what was going on. And this older guy, about 50 or 60, popped his head in and came in and started talking to us and asked if we'd done been to one of these before. And we said, no, we're from out of town. And it's our first time. And he said, don't worry um, about being nervous. It's natural. Uh, then he got a little weird, um, and he said that uh, that your wife is very beautiful, and I would love it if she took her top off. And we both kind of uncomfortably giggled and uh, said, uh, well, "Not right now. Maybe if the mood hit later." Um, but thank you, I guess. Uh, and then uh, he proceeded to say that if uh, she wanted to make an old man's night, that um, she would get naked and. I said, no, thank you. Uh, this is our first time and we're taking it slow. And he said, okay, and left the room. And we both just kind of talked about how weird that experience was, or at least something we'd never experienced before. Um, less than five minutes go by, dude comes back in and asks if we wanted to hear about the time him and his wife had a threesome. And again, we politely declined and said that we just wanted to spend time with each other. Um, after a few minutes, we went back out to the main party and, and he approaches again, this time saying that if my wife wasn't into hooking up with other guys, that, uh, me and her could play with each other and he could just massage her tits. Uh, we again said, no, thank you. Um, but at this point, my wife was extremely creeped out and we, we left shortly thereafter. It wasn't until after we left that my wife pointed out that, uh, he actually 
only talked to me about her, like she wasn't even there or wasn't really a person or some sort of commodity. Um, so here's my question. Uh, this is our first party and it was disappointing to say the least, but uh, if someone's making comments like the ones this guy made, do you be polite because this is kind of a sex forward uh, open party or is it okay to say, fuck off, we don't want him around? It, it sounds really silly because I know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to break some sort of swingers party etiquette rule. The problem, at least initially, wasn't that this creepy guy wouldn't take no for an answer. It's that he wouldn't take the hint. You weren't direct with him. Instead of saying, yeah, not going to happen. We're just here for each other. We're not getting naked. It's our first time. Thank you. Goodbye. You said not right now, maybe later, which is kind of telling somebody who may have boundary issues to circle back later this night to reapproach you, which is what he did. You also said we're taking it slow. And what can that mean? Well, that can mean we're taking it slow this evening and later on we'll be naked or it can mean we're taking it slow over a period of weeks or months as we dip our toes into the swinging scene. You deflected when you needed to shut the asshole down, particularly after it became clear to you that he had no boundaries and had no respect and was fucking dense, either because he's dense, dense, or he's self-servingly dense and manipulative and was trying to leverage your discomfort and your desire to fit in and not to violate some unwritten code of swingers club etiquette into getting your wife's shirt off and getting your wife naked and my advice to you would be to shut the motherfucker down. Thank you, we're not interested. And if that's not enough, thank you, we're not interested in you. And we would prefer to be left alone. Thank you. You have to be polite and dismissive and send someone on their merry way. And if someone keeps circling back to you at a swingers club, any swingers club that you would want to attend is going to have people who are running it. And swingers, clubs, swingers, parties, swingers, communities collapse when they're made to feel like commodities, when they're made to feel uncomfortable, when they're made to feel unsafe by dense idiots who won't take the hint or won't take the no for an answer. Go find those people and say, this person is making us feel uncomfortable, is making my wife feel uncomfortable, and we may leave. Or better yet, your wife approach the person who's running the event and saying, this person is making me feel uncomfortable for these reasons. And if it's the kind of swingers club you want to be at in the first place or return to in the future, they will go and shut that person down on your behalf. You do have the option of reaching out to people through kink apps, through OkCupid, through Adult Friend Finder, through FetLife, through whatever. And instead of going to an established party, uh, arranging your own party with one couple or another couple of couples with the understanding, the explicit understanding that this is about being sexy together in a shared space but not swapping, not touching each other. This is about exhibitionism and voyeurism and a sexy, erotically charged environment in which you and your wife can continue to be monogamous while enjoying the show and getting to be for someone else the show without having to consent to anyone else's demands and without having to allow anyone else to touch you or touch your wife. It is a part of the swinging scene. What you're looking for is definitely a part of the swinging scene. You just have to be explicit about why you're there, what you want, what you will and won't do, and shut people down. You have to get good about rejection. Don't deflect. No, not nows, maybe laters. Nos. Straight up N-O nos. Uh, hey, Dan. I'm calling in response to uh, show 557, the very first call out of the shoot about the the guy who wants to uh, out the dude he's been screwing to his girlfriend. 
and I'm I'm usually in agreement with your uh, opinion and your comments, but I think you're way off on this one. I think uh, the the caller is as big of a scumbag as the other dude, and nothing good can come out of him outing uh, this guy to his girlfriend. In fact, we're only hearing his side of the story, and uh, he's a big enough scumbag, and who knows, he's, he's telling the truth. I think the advice should be walk away. You learn something about uh, yourself, and and leave everybody as is. Hi, Dan. This is a message for the guy from episode 557 who is dating a guy from Grindr who's a closeted bisexual guy with a girlfriend. Normally, I would say don't tell the girlfriend because it's none of your fucking business. But as a woman who dated a closeted bi guy for five years who is a cheating piece of shit behind my back with guys, girls, groups, whoever, uh, because he couldn't bear to tell me the truth or be out with his desires, you know, I paid the price for it. And he exposed me and many other people to all kinds of awesome diseases in the process. So you know what? Go ahead and tell her because I found out anyway, and so will she. I just wish I would have found out a hell of a lot sooner. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm calling in regards to a caller from show 557 um, about ghosting. Yeah, it really fucking sucks. And I think one of the best things that we can do in this age of dating with Tinder and all of that is to be someone who doesn't do that. So anytime that you've been on a date with somebody and it just hasn't gone well for whatever reason, just be honest. I think that's the best way to do it. And then hopefully they will learn from that. And then moving forward, they will be a more respectful person due to people that they don't care to see anymore. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Read my sex advice column, Savage Love, every week in the Georgia Strait and other newspapers all over the place. And if you like my political rants at the top of the show, you should check out Blabbermouth, The Stranger's other podcast. It's a political week in review podcast. You can find it on iTunes Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. And you can check out Velvet Swing products at VelvetSwing.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week. Another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.